Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm Jason Shulman. We've got a great show for you today. My guest is Glenn Diner, who teaches at Sarah Lawrence College, here to talk about his new book, Yankel's Tavern, Jews, Liquor, and Life in the Kingdom of Poland, published by Oxford University Press in 2014, and out this year in paperback. Glenn, welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies. Thank you very much, Jason. Well, we're glad to have you. So this is a story about Jews in the liquor business in 19th century Eastern Europe, and the numbers are staggering. Can you give us a sense of how dominated the industry was by Jews? Well, it's very difficult to answer in exact terms because so much of Jewish involvement in the liquor trade was driven underground as a result of government attempts to stem peasant drunkenness by suppressing Jewish tavern keepers. They thought that that would solve the problem. So what I found as I did my research is uh, officially there were around, I would say, well, the the proportions reached around 80% in the pre-modern period that's around like until the 18th century but when the government started cracking down on jewish tavern keepers the official data suggests a steep decline and yet going through the archives i'm finding that the reality is quite different that jews are just as involved or almost as involved as they always had been and what's really going on is the nobles who owned the vast majority of the taverns and distilleries wanted to keep their Jews running them, so they would just prop up a Christian as a front to the tavern and continue on business as usual. So I'm tempted to say that the proportion remains at close to three-quarters of all taverns and distilleries. Wow. And so these taverns, uh, these are more than just bars, right? What, what would a tavern be like in, in, in your story? Well, you're exactly right. These taverns were really much more than taverns. Um, and travelers coming through Poland would remark on their, their multitude of, of uh, uses. They were hotels. They were restaurants. They were country stores for the peasants. They were banks so that locals could get loans and nobles could actually extract, uh, could uh, take money out as well. They were um, places where you could just get news and advice. They were really multi-purpose, and um, that's why they were so indispensable to local economies. Some of the descriptions of the taverns make it sound kind of disgusting. There were all kinds of smells. There were animals in there. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. And um, so what happens is you start to have a war of stereotypes going on where the social reformers and uh, the Christian travelers all remarking about how dirty, how filthy these taverns are. And they're associated with Jewish pollution. 
Um, and the Jews respond with their own stereotypes, how really the source of the pollution is the Gentiles who are drinking unrestrained in their taverns and uh, vomiting and uh, rumbling around uh, all hours of the night. And so, so there, it really kind of degenerates into a war of images. But the point is not the filth. The point is just how indispensable these taverns were to everyone. That's why they never really could get rid of them until, of course, the Holocaust. And, and just one more thing on the taverns. What, what did they serve uh, alcohol-wise? Was it mostly vodka? Yeah. Yes, um, it was mostly because it was sold on monopolistic terms. And again, I just want to emphasize that the Polish nobility owned the taverns and they would lease them to Jews on monopolistic terms. So peasants, really serfs, had to drink in their nobleman's tavern. Um, there's no incentive, really, to uh, serve high-quality liquor. So most of the liquor was very cheap. They called it vodka. It was really based on rye. And uh, sometimes for the sake of the nobility who happened to be traveling through their upper clergy, the Jewish tavern keeper would experiment with uh, more exotic mixtures. But the vast majority it was very cheap and very strong. Right. So, so there are you know, probably, what, thousands of these taverns spread all across Eastern Europe. And as you mentioned, so the nobility owned the taverns. They leased them to, to Jewish um, tavern keepers. Why were Jews drawn to that role, and why did the nobility find Jews useful for that role? Well, first of all, liquor had become most of the economy throughout Eastern Europe, especially after the partitions of Poland, where Poland was divided between Russia, Prussia, and Austria. And these new borders meant steep tariffs, and you could no longer export grain profitably. So what do the nobles do who own these estates? They turn their rye into vodka and sell it right back to their peasants. Um, now, they can't entrust that job to just anybody, to be a tavern keeper. The nobleman has to believe if he's going to lease his tavern to you, he's got to believe that you're literate, that you're reliable, and that you're not going to drink up all the product. Jews had a reputation for sobriety. And uh, there seems to have been some truth to it, at least until the rise of the Hasidic movement. So Jews with this reputation for sobriety and a higher degree of literacy are the natural candidates. And any time nobles would experiment with peasants, uh, it was a disaster. And with their minor uh, fellow noblemen, it was also a disaster because um, they couldn't really boss them around and they became politically threatening. So everybody kind of decided on Jews. From the Jewish perspective, though, you know, this is a lucrative opportunity. They have very few other occupations that they can go into. They can't go into the professions, at least not very easily. They can't land, they can't own land in most cases. So they have to become merchants of one kind or another. It becomes very competitive. And these tavern leases are actually a great opportunity because, you know, you can really be insured a pretty good profit in the sense that this is the only place for leisure for the 
majority of the population, which is peasants who are subjected to really uh, oppressive conditions and drudgery. And uh, their only relief from all this is to drink in the local tavern. So it's a pretty steady stream of income. And um, everybody except the peasants basically profits from this. Right. It's a little hard for us maybe today to relate to the social structure. Um, am I right that the no- there, were, there were nobles who owned entire villages? What was the stratification of society like, and where did Jews fit in? Were they between the, no- the nobility and the serfs? Well, yeah, so there were towns that were not owned by nobles. I mean, some were owned by upper clergy bishops, for example. Uh, some were owned by the king and then later by the state. But most towns were so-called private towns. So they were owned by the nobles. And that means the nobles could pretty much do whatever they wanted with these towns. And these towns were surrounded by satellites of villages. And so with this exclusive authority over the local economy, the nobility gets its choice. Who do they want to run their taverns and and, uh, who do they want to use to make the most profits possible? And that's why this kind of symbiosis emerges. The nobles will protect their Jews. They'll provide them with lucrative opportunities to at least survive economically, if not thrive. And the Jews, in turn, will prove non-threatening politically. They will run, usually, a good tavern. And it doesn't just have to be a tavern. It could be a mill. It could be some other enterprise. But uh, this relationship works out pretty well for Jews and nobles. So uh, what is the general view we have of Jewish life in Eastern Europe? And how does your story of all these Jews leasing all these taverns change the story? Well, the way it changes is, for one thing, we tend to see Polish Jewish history through the lens of the Holocaust and pogroms, and um, not to diminish at all the the horror of these episodes, but there were long periods, really centuries, of Polish Jewish coexistence, and the tavern is really the main location of this coexistence because it allowed Jews to make a living. They were usually protected by the nobles who own the taverns. And the peasants really relied on these taverns, too. And they relied on the Jewish tavern keeper for advice, for medical remedies, for mediation, for loans, for all kinds of services. Uh, They would even hold their religious ceremonies, at least the celebratory parts of their ceremonies, in the tavern. So, for example, the wedding would begin in the church, but it would proceed en masse to the tavern for the actual celebration. And the same with, you know, funerals would begin in the church and then proceed to the tavern. They'd be met by the Jewish tavern keeper who would toast the newlywed couple or maybe uh, make a toast and honor the deceased. And so, you know, Jews become very integral even to local religious life. Now, on the other hand, the cooperation works both ways. Um, Jews could not run their taverns on the Sabbath or on major holidays. So that's where they rely on the peasants. They would prop up uh, Christian fronts, um, although you know, they would be careful to create legal fictions through rabbinic authorities on those days and really make these local Christians their partners in the enterprise, um, at least officially their partners, so that they could not be guilty 
of breaking the Sabbath, but could keep their taverns running. Uh, and this really came in handy when the state began to crack down on Jewish tavern keeping because it was a very natural transition to go from the so-called Shabbos Goy, which is this Christian who runs your tavern on the Sabbath, and um, using that same Christian as a front to make it look like that Christian actually runs the tavern so state officials won't bother you and you can keep business going on as usual. It was a conspiracy, but that conspiracy against the state, which most people locally saw as just intrusive, is very suggestive, you know. It symbolizes a deep degree of Polish and Jewish coexistence that we tend to forget about because of the breakdown that occurred later on, the end of the 19th century. But there were limits to that coexistence, right? You would say that there wasn't social integration. No, we're not talking about social integration. This is actually a really important point because so much of literature about these earlier periods tends to focus on every example of integration we could find, you know, assimilation, or as historians like to call it, acculturation. There were Jews who really did learn Polish well, attempt to enter the universities, you know, um, attempt to socialize with Poles, and took part in the Polish uprising against the Tsars. But that's really dominated the story, because it's been kind of a counterweight to the stereotype of anti-Semitism and oppression. And that's a good thing. These This kind of integration really did happen, but it can't be allowed to completely dominate the story because what I'm finding is actually this tended to happen more along the fringe. You know, the more well-educated, the more urbanized Jews did tend to polonize. But there were the majority of Jews who would interact with Polish Christians without integrating with them. So the way I describe a typical tavern is not integration, but rather interaction within heavily prescribed roles. You know, the Jew is running the tavern, dealing with liquor suppliers, dealing with uh, customers, and dealing with the noblemen and that kind of a thing. And the Christians he encounters are most likely going to be peasants who are his customers. And, um, you know, that tends to be a kind of coexistence that does not involve real socializing. They're not drinking together in most cases. Although, you know, Jewish merchants will stop in the Jewish-run tavern on business, you know, when they're traveling and so on. Still, they tend to sit at separate tables, and they don't really integrate in any meaningful way. They dress differently. They uh, speak a different language in most cases, and they tend to hold each other in a certain amount of mutual suspicion, contempt, and yet grudging trust. Uh, that's how I would describe it. Can you tell us briefly uh, about the archives you used to research the story? Yeah, it's a really fascinating story, actually, because the archives were virtually closed before 1989 during the communist era. And with the fall of communism, these archives in Poland, uh, which is where I did most of my work, suddenly became very accessible and open. 
and you could travel there. And you know, the, the question was, what really survived after the burning of the Warsaw Ghetto during the Holocaust and after all kinds of destruction during the general Warsaw Uprising? What was left? So, you know, you really feel like a pioneer. Now, I had just written a history of Hasidism, so I wanted to try to get away from that topic. And I also didn't really want to write another story of secularization, polonization, assimilation, because as I said, that it dominated the story so much. So I really went to the archives and I started flipping through these large files just in search of a topic. And I'm not kidding when I say that the words Jews, vodka, drunkenness just began popping out uh, on each page, basically. You know, mm-hmm. And, you know, the later you get in the story, it becomes more and more interesting because Jews legally weren't even supposed to be selling liquor anymore. They Historians had thought they'd been completely abolished from the liquor trade because historians tend to follow the legislation. And I was seeing this whole underground liquor trade going on. So right there I had a topic. What made it even more interesting, though, was this counter-narrative. So the narrative we're more familiar with is the government begins driving Jews out of the liquor trade through expulsions, through heavy concession fees that only Jews have to pay, and it's thought to dwindle to nothing. But I'm finding a counter-narrative where despite the uh, best efforts of the state and other powerful figures, the uh, Jews are continuing, very much continuing, to not only sell liquor, but but, um, really fulfill these vital roles that tavern keepers had always fulfilled. And that gave me a story of coexistence, which um, really helped combat this this extremely negative one-sided portrayal of the Jewish experience in Eastern Europe. To have that kind of a conspiracy, it requires that all the locals pretty much cover for the Jewish tavern keeper. They um, would even cover for the Jewish tavern keeper during investigations. When the government would get wind of what was going on, they start interrogating everybody. And so you have this extraordinary situation that I think um, gives us a little bit of hope, but also I would say um, a kind of pragmatic optimism that even ethnic and religious groups that are rivals or that are that are in a situation of mutual animosity and enmity actually tend to get along when economics are at stake, when they can fulfill each other's needs in the way that I describe in my book. Because what my book really shows is that the tavern tended to bring Jews and Christians together and prevent the kind of pogroms and, um, and anti-Jewish economic boycotts that really began to characterize the 20th century after this system began to break down. You know, I was surprised in Chapter 5 when the peasants are emancipated. I thought that was going to be it for Jews in the business, but in the liquor business, but they remain remarkably resilient. Is that right? 
That's absolutely right. Um, now, what do we attribute that to? Is it just Jewish resilience or is it the nobles' uh, sense of inertia and tradition? We always had Jews run our taverns. We're going to continue to have Jews run our taverns. It's probably both. It's probably both. Um, you know, Jews had accumulated a great deal of experience. They'd won the trust of the nobles. And the really, uh, the only real way that the system begins to, begins to break down is with the breakdown of the nobility itself. As they became impoverished, partly as a result of emancipation, you know, they no longer had free peasant labor anymore, um, the decline of the nobility is really going to be the decline of this whole system. Suddenly, Jews are deprived of their protectors because the nobles are going bankrupt. They're selling off their land. They're moving to the cities. They're brought into direct competition with Jews as um, as uh, shopkeepers and and uh, and uh, traders of various kinds. And so, you know, the old system really does begin to break down at that point. Um, but it's really only at that point. So the decline of the nobility, I would say, is the key factor to the decline of Jews in the Polish liquor trade. Um, and that's also a key to the rise of the pogroms. You know, the reason you didn't have these massive pogrom waves that began in 1881 and another wave in 1903 and another wave in 1919, you couldn't have that before because the nobles were there to protect their Jews. They saw as the Jews as their investment, as their source of revenue, as their guarantee of, of revenue. And so, you know, with the disappearance of the nobles, you have the disappearance of the Jews' protectors, their traditional protectors. And now things become very tense between Jews and emancipated peasants. And um, the, the very things that kept the anti-Jewish violence in check are uh, dwindling, and if not disappearing. And so um, suddenly Jewish life in Eastern Europe becomes very dangerous. So uh, would it be fair to say that uh, Eastern European Jews' um, political inclinations was towards order and stability? I mean, does that sort of change the way we think about uh, the Jewish political perspective? Yes, I mean, order and stability are very much desired by the Jews who are just trying to live as a vulnerable diaspora group, but also by the nobles who are trying to hold on to their estates. Um, you know, they're living now under czarist rule or under Habsburg rule or Prussian rule. And these absolutist monarchs, the Russians, the Prussians, and the Austrians also want stability. Uh, the, the, problem is, is they also want to reform their economies. You know, when your entire economy is based on liquor, that means your entire labor force is today what we would call alcoholic. You know, they, it was a tremendous problem with productivity. And they tend to blame the Jewish tavern keepers. So what do they do? They do two things. They try to banish Jews from the liquor trade. That doesn't work. But they also emancipate the peasantry which we can all support and agree with. It's a great thing, but there are unintended consequences. The big unintended consequence of peasant emancipation is you now have the emergence 
of a whole group that's deprived of its patronage is suddenly thrown into the market as a new competitive force. And, um, you know, the, the inter-ethnic competition and tension, that unintended consequence of emancipation, basically spins out of control. You have riots, pogroms, boycotts of Jews, eventually political parties arise that are based essentially on anti-Semitism. You know, it's a continuation of this. And, um, you know, Poland is not going to really recover down to the Holocaust from the unintended consequences of the demise of this old system that I try to describe in my book. I don't think this is really the results of ill-intentioned people or opportunistic people. I don't think that we should consider you know, villains in this story. I think what we need to consider is what happens when a state tries to modernize but doesn't do it very successfully. And that's really the story of the demise of the Jewish liquor trade and the eruption of this anti-Jewish violence is um, the old coexistence came to an end. That whole system, uh, which I describe in the liquor trade, but you could apply it to other areas of the economy as well, just broke down. There are a number of uh, really interesting figures in the book um, who are sort of not household names, maybe, in uh, Jewish history. Who um, who is Rabbi Elijah Guttmacher, and why is he important to the story? Well, he's a fascinating figure. Um, in his day, he was a famous rabbi um, who would have been called a Rebbe or a Hasidic leader, except he wasn't Hasidic. But everything he did was basically Hasidic. You know, he really operated as a kind of a Rebbe. People would stream to him from all parts of Europe and even beyond, even from America, they would come bearing petitions, asking for his advice, his blessings, his intercession with divine powers, you know, and his miracles. These petitions numbered in, I would say, more than a thousand, it's, it's, it's around 7,000. And the interesting thing about Guttmacher is he kept all of them. So what we have in the Yivar archives and another portion in Jerusalem is this enormous collection of so-called kvitlach, these petitions to Guttmacher, whom people are treating as a miracle worker. And what they do in these petitions is they write their life story many times. You know, they say that um, I have I was running a tavern successfully, but then um, this peasant arose and uh, established a tavern across the street from mine and he's driving me out of business or something to that effect. You know, that was the use I had of these petitions for this specific topic, but they're extremely wide ranging. They give us an incredible window onto various aspects of Jewish life in Eastern Europe. Um, everything from economic issues to medical and fertility issues to sexuality, divorce, marriage. It's, it's pretty much every aspect of Eastern Europe contained in these petitions. So I actually went through the entire collection and uh, took hundreds of pages of notes on these things and translations. And um, I would 
almost go so far as to compare it to the famous Cairo Geniza in the sense that we have frozen in time this kind of picture of various aspects of East European Jewish life. Well, Glenn, we've taken up a lot of your time, so any parting thoughts you'd like to share, and uh, what are you working on next? Well, what I'm working on next is almost like a sequel to the story because ultimately what I was trying to do was question what I see as Jewish history as a secularization narrative. You know, by focusing on these tavern keepers and workaday Jews, I really found that um, many of them were very traditional in their orientation, and many became Hasidim. They joined the Hasidic movement, uh, and, uh, you know, other movements of tradition as well. And so in this next book, I've decided to focus on 20th century Poland and really look at the survival and revival of Hasidism and Orthodoxy in the 20th century in Poland, that especially the period between the world wars. Um, thanks especially to Stalin's Soviet Union, which virtually eradicated Jewish religious life. Jews of a traditionalist bent began to pour over the borders into independent Poland. Uh, entire yeshivas even would come over the border and establish them there. And Hasidic courts would come into Poland, including the famous Lubavitcher court. And they set up and they turned interwar Poland, which is so often viewed as a place of Zionism and socialism and other secular forms of Judaism. They really uh, prevailed over a resurgence of traditional Jewish life, which was funded in large part by American money. American organizations and individual Americans, even if they weren't religious themselves, tended to want Polish Jews to continue to be religious. They had a sort of nostalgic view. So millions of dollars pouring into these uh, Orthodox organizations and Hasidic courts. And, and it's just a fascinating story that hasn't been told. I would like to take this story through the Holocaust, in fact, and see what happened to these yeshivas and Hasidic courts during the Holocaust. Um, how did they react to the Nazis' of deportation and uh, this assault on Jewish life in general, and um, you know, really follow some of them to America as well, because thanks to the rescue efforts of various individuals, uh, many of these yeshivas were able to survive, and they they formed uh, the uh, the origin of what today in America we call ultra orthodoxy. So I'm not exactly rooting for traditionalism, but I, I I insist that it become part of the story of modernization. Because if we want a true picture of Jewish modernization in Poland and elsewhere, it has to be much more heterogeneous. It, it, yes, people became Zionists and socialists, and yes, they they Polonized and, and became acculturated or assimilated, but many possibly most remained very traditional, Hasidic, uh, orthodox in a more institutionalized manner, and their story, I feel, has yet to really be told. Glenn, that sounds like a great project. I want to thank you for being on the show today. The book is Yankel's Tavern, Jews, Liquor, and Life in the Kingdom of Poland, published by Oxford University Press in 2014 and out this year in paperback. The author is Glenn Diner. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us. Check us out at newbooksinjewishstudies.com. You can download the podcast on iTunes, 
check out our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter at New Books Judaism. Got an idea for a book we should cover? Send us an email, newbooksandjewishstudies at gmail.com. We'll see you next time.